Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Faces and Finouts powered by ProsperOps. I'm your host, John Meyer. Now, the Faces and Finouts podcast is all about highlighting thought leaders in the cloud financial management space and insights on how they're making an impact not only within their company, but the broader Finops community. I'm going to switch things up a little bit, and I'm going to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves. Ellie? Thank you, John, and hi, everyone. I'm uh, Ellie Mansour. Um, I'm in the cloud business for over 10 years, quite a lot of times. I was uh, managing Rackspace business in Israel, and later on I was uh, managing cloud health business in Israel. So actually, this was like six, seven years ago. This is where I got into FinOps. And this is where I understood that FinOps is much bigger than just one activity or two activities. It's like a huge thing. Um, following uh, uh, Cloud Elf, I joined AWS for four years. I published a book about cloud cost management uh, five, six years ago and uh, spent some time at AWS. And in the past almost two years, I left and I ran my uh, own business to support organization, adopt FinOps culture, optimize cloud spend, um, improve their cloud agreements and the partnership agreements with the cloud vendors. And this is what I do on a daily basis. Now, Ellie, we, this is actually part two for everybody. We have a part one. And if you want to take a look at part one, you've got to look up here, here, where, wherever it's going to be on YouTube. Usually it's up in this corner. But Ellie, in part one, we talked about the Mastering AWS Cost Optimization book you wrote in 2019, which was the first edition. There's a third edition. There won't be any more that's coming out. Just mm -hmm. to want to tell everybody that right away, because obviously Ellie has Oscar Q Consulting. And he has to say some of that stuff for himself. He also talked about running the FinOps consulting business. Uh, you wrote a practice for the Israel government that included AWS and GCP, well, banks, tech companies. But in part two, I want to dive deeper into some of the trends that are happening. And one of the things I want to kick things off is the hot topic of Kubernetes. Can you do cost optimization, FinOps within Kubernetes, Ellie? All right, that's, that's a, a great topic to, to start this uh, podcast with. So Kubernetes is, you know, is the trend. Yeah, uh, most organizations are adopting or about to adopt Kubernetes, no matter if you are a tech company or a, an enterprise a financial organization and so on. So Kubernetes is, is where every organization is heading to. And guess what? It's one of the least optimized workload that you can imagine. And I will uh, explain why. Yeah. So what is Kubernetes? You actually take your application, you wrap it up in a container, in a pod. Pod is the, the word. And you place the pod on a node. A node is an EC2 instance. Yeah, it's the, it's the compute infrastructure. Once you... Uh, define the pod, the developer actually is the one to decide how much RAM and mem like memory and CPU he wants the, his application to consume. Guess what? He doesn't care so much whether he asks a bit more than needed. Um, and also application has uh, dynamic requirements for uh, memory and CPU. Yeah, in spin-up time, they need more, more uh, resources than um, after spin-up time. So 
Uh, in most cases, pods are over uh, provisioned with capacity and the more capacity the developer asks for, the more EC2 instances you need to run your application. At the end of the day, it ends up with 50, 60, 70, and I even saw 90% of inefficiency. Yeah, over provisioning. It's huge, huge, huge overspend. And, and we see actually um, organization looking into, hey, how can I optimize my uh, Kubernetes workload? And as I mentioned, because the pods are have dynamic needs, it's very hard to kind of say, hey, how much RAM and CPU I need on a constant basis. And this is where uh, some tools come into place. I will mention one like ScaleOps, I think is one, the leading, the leader one, um, that actually adjust the memory and CPU uh, allocation per pod on a dynamic basis. So actually, if, so Kubernetes are not so optimized. I've seen like 50 to 80% uh, overspend and uh, there is a solution. Yeah, you need to test it, of course. You need to trust it. You need to you give it a try. Uh, but the nice thing about this tool is that you will see the inefficiency right away. So you will know the saving opportunity right away. Then you will decide whether you want to put it in a autopilot mode, yeah, on an automatic mode to actually um, adjust the resource allocation. So it's a big topic. It's a hot topic. It's happening in Israel. Um, a lot of hype around it. I believe it's also, you know, it's it's uh, something to to look at all around the globe. Anyone who is using uh, Kubernetes. Ellie, I want to jump into it and talk a little bit more about right sizing actually your Kubernetes cluster. And here's how I envision things because Kubernetes is just a new technology and using an old way like virtualization and virtualizing your environment. We had our physical servers in a data center and now we have EC2 instances. There's no difference in my opinion. And you're just adding more into the environment. So you had these physical servers, you're adding virtualized servers onto it. And just like the age old thing for engineers and developers is, I wanna give as much memory and everything and CPU to them as possible because I want them to always be up. I really don't care, they gotta run for it. But now when you move to the cloud, it actually is more important to be cost optimized within your environment because you are literally paying for the seconds and the hours and the minutes for these environments. Can you really optimize Kubernetes automatically manually by yourself or do you need a tool to help you do that? So many organizations start with the manual. Um, you know, they try to do it manually, but at the end of the day, you have a thousand pods running with dynamic resource requirements. So I see organizations trying, you know, they, they experiment with KubeCost or other tools that gives them the visibility and then they ask developers to go and fix the problem. But as we know from FinOps Foundation uh, uh, um, reports, on a yearly basis, we see that developers are less um, into it. Yeah, they have other tasks. They need to develop the product. They need to hit uh, um, the development milestones. And they want also to make sure that the, the, the application has all the resources that 
they can grant it. So it's a process that organizations try to do. Takes time, takes effort. I don't think it gives the, the results that, uh, that uh, the organization wish to, uh, to achieve. And then it comes to, okay, what can we try next? And this is where they look at automation. Now, I, I, organization needs to take it carefully. Yeah, you can easily try and explore automation in development environment, yeah? Now, no harm can happen, yeah? And there are huge development environments in these organizations running on Kubernetes, yeah? Let's, let's test it, let's try it there. And once you get the confidence, you can, um, um, you know, um, adopt it also in production environments. Again, with the with the right measures, track what you are doing, make sure that it works, and then step by step. But um, the manual task is like there are so many tools that gives you right sizing recommendations. Yeah, but at the end of the day, developers less take action on these recommendations. Um, so it's, it's an evolution. Yeah, first let's understand there is a challenge. Let's understand there is overspend there. Then organization try to man the manual path. It works to some, some extent, but if you really want to make it uh, optimize, you'll need to deal with uh, some kind of automation. Ellie, according to the 2023 FinOps survey, 33% is the number where engineers don't want to take action. The number <laughs> one reason is why should I take action on something that's working? I've got other things I need to do. I want to dive a little bit more into the Kubernetes because you mentioned doing the right sizing for RAM and CPU and utilizing tools to help you do it dynamically. But there's other things you can do with regards to a Kubernetes cluster, like the storage that's on the back end, the networking, yeah. um, the environment that it's utilizing, the database that's supposedly not attached, but you still can do a lot of things and connect to this database because the data has to reside somewhere. Are there any recommendations on how to review that and understand and actually implement some cost optimization efforts to some of the storage that might be attached? Yeah, so again, like, like similar to the over-provisioning of the CPU and RAM, um, there is over-provisioning in the, in the disk uh, space. And again, it's the... the, the you know, this is kind of the following challenge. Yeah. So uh, uh, first, people needs to to be able to monitor the EBS utilization, the disk utilization. Actually, uh, uh, so the disk utilization, but not all monitoring tool gives this information to the to the end users. So in many cases, the developers are not aware to this challenge at all. Yeah, they are not aware that they provisioned 100 uh, gig and they are using 20 gig. So first, uh, visualization um, on your disk utilization is the first step. Second is to try to adjust uh, the disk to the, to the actual size. Um, people are less aware and are less adopting it, but in AWS, at least, you have the option to auto-scale your EBS uh, volumes. And I think this will be the next trend of startups that will be dealing with EBS. Yeah, I mentioned the, 
scale-ups for Kubernetes, but I think in the next year, we will start to see uh, more um, companies dealing with visualizing EBS utilization and um, also trying to optimize it again dynamically based on the use. Um, something to mention about Azure, right? Again, uh, many people are not aware of it, but Azure, you you pay for storage uh, based on tiers, disk tiers. So actually you may require 100 gig, but you will end up paying 200 for 200 gig because that's the that's the storage tier for their uh, disks. So once you get into it, we understand the utilization level. This is where you understand the saving opportunity and this is where you start to to consider the actions that you can take. Some of it can be handled by the developers and some will require, you know, some further uh, 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 tools to support you with this task. But I think disk will follow. Will be organization will start with Kubernetes optimization, then disk, you know, in the, as the next uh, effort. Eli, you talked about visualization and engineers not knowing or what they're utilizing because they're not even aware of it. The reporting capabilities, the monitoring capabilities. Can you talk to me a little bit more on how you're educating customers that the visualization of monitoring and the reporting capabilities is crucial, not only to your engineers, but to implementing the FinOps culture? Yeah. So uh, actually also uh, Warner uh, Vogel uh, spoke about it is in, in his keynote uh, in reInvent. So it's uh, uh, this uh, questions uh, aligned with uh, his session uh, as well. So. In order to take action, engineers needs to know why, you know, is there a problem? Uh, why should we change? Everything works well. And, and one, uh, one step in implementing a FinOps culture into an organization is actually share dashboards with the different teams. So they will know which, which are their workloads and how much do their workloads um, cost. Uh, one process I currently run with one organization with like, uh, let's say around 15 development teams. So for each team, we are building a dashboard with the compute, the databases, the Kubernetes, whatever services they are using. But for each one, we kind of build up a, a widget showing the cost, we have a view of a monthly change, weekly change, but and a daily change. Actually, and actually, once they start to see it, this is the place where you can also educate them about the pricing model. Yeah, if if they see the cost and they understand the pricing model, they can also come up with ideas of, hey, I allocated much more RAM than I needed, and now I know that it impacts the cost, maybe we can fix. Or I provision the um, you know, 16 extra large database, maybe I can be okay with 12 extra large. So once they see the cost and understand the pricing model, then the discussion is becoming uh, more mature. I'm not saying it's an easy process. Sometimes it takes six months in an organization to get the support, you know, you know, to get the executives do, to support and the VP of R&D to support this move. And 
then it's it's consuming developers time but once the process is implemented i see that getting the visibility and the awareness to cloud cost also helps the developers understand if there is a bug in the system and this is when they get engaged i'll give an example that happened to uh, one of the organizations I support recently, they are using a translate, the translation services. And instead of a, you know, 5K a month, we, we saw a, an anomaly, a spike in the, 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 the spend on a daily basis. And then we say, hey, what happened? And they ask translate to translate, uh, um, you know, uh, from English to Spanish, but they send up, you know, Dach, uh, the text in Dach. So translate, try it again and again and again. So actually the the cost spike um, hinted to a, to a bug in the platform. And I see that quite often. And then engagement starts to evolve and then it becomes a, a, a part of the developer life to actually look at the dashboards. They see that it gives a value. You need to kind of generate the point that developers see these cost dashboards as a value um, and not as a headache. Uh, that's a process to implement and it's, uh, it takes time. But once it happens, uh, some magic is happening. You get their support, you get their engagement, you get their ideas. They are the one to know the application uh, the best. Yes, so the best ideas will come from these developers once you get them engaged. Well, that's a really good example on how the reporting capabilities and the dashboard provided value to the developers. They were able to see the anomaly, see the cost going up, and they were able to troubleshoot it rather than, and I, I like the word you use, headache, because in most cases, when you're showing somebody a dashboard, hey, you got to cut this cost, you got to do this, it's like, I ain't got time to do that work or yeah. that's just too much. It works. So why do anything? Ellie, one of the other topics that I really want to dive into is, you know, lift and shift is still around. We've mm -hmm. been talking about lift and shift for like 10, 15 years, whether you lift and shift from a physical to a virtual in a private cloud, lift and shift has always been around. Does FinOps play a role within lift and shifts? So FinOps should play a role. And if it's not uh, taking place, then, uh, you, you overspend and you have an headache. So let's let's uh, explain. So what in 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 lift and shift, you actually take a workload that runs in your data center and you move it to the cloud as is. Why? Because you want to shut down a data center of because uh, cloud vendors, uh, you know, uh, gave you some incentives to do it or convinced you that this is the right trend and you start with lift and shift and then you modernize and so on. So there are different uh, reasons why to do it. Uh, but then there is, but, but once you do it, it means you also take the application that was built, let's say 10 years ago with the Windows licenses, with the Oracle databases, without any scaling uh, capabilities, no auto scaling, you are not using any of the cloud native services. So you are actually not benefit from many of the cloud values. Yeah. Um, and if you compare an EC2 instance to a 
server that you bought five years ago or three years ago into your data, data center, ECT will be more expensive. So financially, you have no incentive to do it. So, but your organization are motivated to do that. They want to move to the cloud. They want to have workloads on the cloud. They get some incentives. They do this lift and shift project. And then they end up with paying for different licenses, for very expensive databases, for um, you know, thousands of servers running 24-7. And that's just cost much more than needed. Uh, I recently support, I currently support an organization that this, did such move and this business unit became non-profitable and they need to um, get, get uh, you know, they, they need to take aside this business unit or to sell it or to shut it down. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that many organizations do not pay attention to at the early stages of uh, this process. And I really encourage organizations, if you want to move a workload to the cloud, no matter which cloud provider it is, bring FinOps into the discussion from day one of the discussion. Let's make sure we, we pick up the right architecture, we pick up the right services, we re-pick up the right operating system, databases, and so on. Even if it takes longer to migrate, it's... I, I believe it's much better because modernizing an application once it's on the cloud sometimes takes a year or two, most likely two years or more. During this time, you overspend by, you know, you pay double. I don't know how much you pay more, but you definitely pay more. And also your engineers will be busy with modernization tasks. So engineers busy, you don't evolve the product and you overspend. So there is no, <laughs> no pluses in this uh, equation. Yeah, it's uh, um, FinOps has to get into the discussion as early as possible um, into, lift, into, into any migration project. Otherwise, the pain will be painful. You know, it's going to be a pain. The pain will be in their wallet as it progresses along. <laughs> Ellie, that actually is a huge topic really around lift and shift. And most of the time when you lift and shift, you have to get out of something. You need to do something. There's yeah. time is always against you. And it's always time that you have to get out of your data center. You have to change the application. But you actually just mentioned that even if it takes you more time, it's going to save you more dollars in the long run because in most times, when you lift the ship to an application to the cloud or wherever it's going to be, refactoring it, I agree, takes a year or even more or even sometimes doesn't happen. And now you're paying double because you go, went to the cloud and you're not using the cloud for what it was meant to be. Dynamic, yeah. they have the services, they have the cost optimization. Yes? Definitely. It's, it's, uh, it will really impact your business if you if you kind of neglect it or keep it to next year or keep it to phase two. I've seen so many organizations, so many organizations who made the move because they had to. They didn't give the thought about cost. Um, it's uh, like you say, it's pain painful in the wallet, in the, in, in, their, in the wallet. But then 
it's also drives decisions and discussion. Was it worth it to make the move to the cloud? And then the next workload is not going to move to the cloud. So actually, we wanted to encourage the migration to the cloud, but then we are blocking many more workloads to move to the cloud. I think also that giving it a thought from day one will also onboard the team that deals with the modern, with the migration and the modernization. They will bring them up to speed with cloud infrastructure knowledge faster. You know, they will get familiar with what is serverless and what is Kubernetes and what is Aurora or, you know, whatever service you need. And then they will make more knowledgeable decisions about how the infrastructure needs to look at, to look at the cloud. I, again, I can give another example of a cyber organization I, I support and not leveraging the scale, the auto scaling, the flexibility of the cloud infrastructure, which usually happens in lift and shift, really harm the business, really makes it um, difficult to sell the product because your competitors are cloud native. They leverage the benefits, their product will be cheaper and you will lag, lag behind for like two or three years. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really a topic I'm kind of, it's a kind of a stop sign. Let's think about it. Let, let's bring cost and FinOps into mind. Now let's make the decisions. Like I'll give you an example of exactly what you said. I had a company that I worked for, and this was, oh my God, 2015, and they needed to get out of their data center. They were spending mm -hmm. $2 million in this colocation center, and it was going to go up to like $4 million or something. They're like, we have to get out. So let's lift and shift yeah. to AWS. And they did like for like. Their monthly bill for AWS actually surpassed 500000 a month. And they thought they were going to save a ton of money going to the cloud because they were going to lift and ship. At that yeah. point, they should have educated and went through the process of understanding what the AWS services were, how they could utilize them, the efficiency of it, and stop building a data center in the cloud. Yeah. When does the product design and processes come into play? And does it play a role within your lift and shift or any type of application when it comes to FinOps? Yeah, so... Uh... I think product and product managers is kind of the next evolution of FinOps because at the end of the day, they dictate what's going to be implemented by the developers. And now you have product managers who are not aware of their cost decisions. Yeah, let's develop a feature. Let's develop develop a model. Let's, let's build these reports and hand them out to the customers. Yeah. So the product are kind of showing the path, uh, developers develop the product, again, without any cost awareness in mind. And then you have the FinOps who, let's say six months after or three months after is kind of chasing the, hey, what's what happened? So this loop has to kind of connect. And the more you onboard the product managers to be cost aware in their decisions, uh, the less fixing you will need to do six months after, one year after. And again, this is a place where organizations are less aware of it. 
and they need to you know do to release new new features quickly to the market because one one customer asked for it or five customers asked for it so they need to rush and do it and something something interesting is happening sometimes you have one customer asking for a feature yeah and it's an important customer you 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 want to serve him you promised him a feature or so on or so on and you develop the feature but now you you enable it to a million customers or to 100k customers or to 10k customers but only one customer asked for this feature so hey let's enable it to this specific customer and we can say okay all other customers can opt in by request or can opt in for the you know we can upsell this feature to this to the new to the other customers so this state of mind is not yet into the into the product manager's uh, way of doing uh, their work i think it's an evolution of finops to kind of you know we had finop practitioners we when we we start to have R&D people engage, procurement people engage, and so on. But product managers will be definitely part of making the product optimized from day one. You know, if we get to this uh, point, uh, the FinOps life will be easier because you will have less fixing and you will know that product to, to cost aware decisions. I try to implement this culture, not, you know, within also the product team. So I actually run workshops with uh, with product teams to kind of say, hey, these are the services we are using, or these are the customers who are using our product. Now let's think how we can, you know, your ideas, you know the product, you know which feature you enable to to these different customers. How can we save? And actually, they come up with great, great ideas because they know the product. They know what one customer asks, and we enable to 10k customers. Let's disable it, or let's not give it as a default. So that's uh, that's happening. It's it's kind of early days of it, uh, but it will we will speak about it more and more in uh, I believe in the next years. I think it's important when you're implementing a product or implementing a feature, it's a new product, a new service that you're adding, a, a new feature that enables an existing product on everything that encompasses and supports that new product or feature. But what about an existing service out there? Should you be taking that service and evaluating all components that connect to it, communicate with it from the storage to the network yeah. to the database. Should you be analyzing all those? Because I'm going to add on to that question is that's a lot of time to evaluate yeah. every single component in order to do cost optimization. Is there a benefit that you do it or you don't do it and you save money or you don't save money? You're, you're right. So if you look, so organizations start you know, they're the early days of FinOps, you look at compute, you look at, uh, you want to remove zombies, you want to right-size some of the components, great. Then three months, six months, you did these tasks, and then you are left with, like, all the other components that are much complex also to understand, much complex to make these uh, changes there. As, uh, and, and what I do is that I try to, 
instead of looking at, hey, your data transfer costs this and your NAT gateway costs that and this. So I try to identify kind of workload owners. Uh, and then you show that, hey, you deal with data analytics. So you have Kinesis and Redshift and data transfer and, you know, all of this is under your domain. So it's not 10K and 10K and 10K. It's actually 50K or actually 100K. And you also use a third-party tool to help you with log analytics. And so I try to kind of package it all together and say, hey, all of this workload cost us 80K a month. Now does it make a change? Does it make sense to try and look and optimize it? Um, and once you do this, it captures more uh, more attention from the executives, from the VP R and Ds, from the VP operation, because they know that all these components come together. Sometimes we we identify that we have overlaps. It happens a lot. I'll give you an, an actual, you know, an example I deal with today. So an organization that has a log analytics uh, service in Azure, they also use a third party log analytics platform. And of course, they also use a lot of services from AWS for log analytics. So if you would take only one component, it doesn't justify any any investment. But if you sum them all up, it ends up to like half a million dollars a year. Now, when you present it this way, it's kind of, okay, it was the effort. Let's, let's uh, drill down and understand what we are doing here. And then you understand that you have duplicate processes and you duplicate your data and you transfer it from one cloud to another and from one cloud to the third party tool and so on and so on. So now you try to uncover, you get the buy-in from the executive, they place um, a developer or a data specialist to look into this. And then when they pay attention and they try to build the cover, you know, they will come up with ideas. So I'm sure we will be able to cut it's not, it's not about cost, it's to make the process more efficient. Why do you need to store the data here, here, and here? Let's put it in one place where it has to be. I don't care where. And then all, all applications will access the, and reach out to this uh, one single place, less duplications. The application will be more efficient. You will maintain one process. It actually has a lot of other benefits not only cost, uh, the, the, the cost saving is kind of an outcome of a more efficient application. So that's actually the value it brings and saving dollars, it's uh, kind of the, um, the, the another, uh, another result of it. Saving dollars is a byproduct of implementing By it. Yeah, I wish I had all this vocabulary. I wish, I wish. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Like, I got two more questions before I wrap things up. When I was out at reInvent, I was actually talking to an awesome guy, and we were talking about the payback period of FinOps. When you implement it, there's a cost associated with implementing it, right? There's a lot of investment, yeah. a lot of uh, yeah. culture. Uh, you have to put everybody together, reporting, dashboards, reviewing everything. It's really overwhelming, right? So you're investing all this time and money up front. 
how soon or how do you get the payback, the, the actual cost optimization, the benefit, the byproduct of FinOps? Like, how can you expedite this to start seeing yeah. results? Do I just evaluate everything all at once or can I take little chunks and start seeing results immediately that will show my company, show everybody the value of implementing this culture? So there are cases where you get the job and you see many low hanging fruits that will bring a quick ROI for the FinOps engagement. Um, usually people hire me after they did that. So I don't have the, I don't have this luxury to come and, uh, you know, deal with the low hanging fruit stuff. So I'm looking for other ways to bring uh, this uh, ROI. Um, and usually, like we said, you know, dealing with networking, dealing with data, dealing with data analytics, it takes Kubernetes, it takes, it takes longer. It's not a one day activity. Sometimes it takes six months or one year to understand the challenge, to evaluate the op op options, to get the buy-in of the organization and to make the change. You know, if you are dealing with changing S3 storage tiers, it can take time. It's, it, it takes time, this project. So uh, in many cases, I identify these opportunities, but th this requires some investment. Something I focus, you know, th things that happen uh, more often is actually the agreements with third party or uh, um, um, tool providers, and also the agreements with the cloud providers. Uh, and this is a place that I think many organizations uh, miss the point uh, they, they don't know the whole picture and this is a place that i try also to bring value to the organizations i support and over there again there is a, a big chunk of dollars that are also not optimized or the organization are not maximizing the the benefit they can get so it's a combination of Let's look at how we can do more with FinOps within the cloud infrastructure, but also let's look at the third party agreements you have. And also let's look at the agreements you have with the cloud provider and also with partnership agreements with cloud providers. So there are more options than just, hey, let's do FinOps and save some dollar with data, data efficiency project or cleaning zombie resources or right-sizing activities. So there is the, one pipeline is that, but there is also one pipeline to look at all this agreement and bring value there. And tons of dollars can be saved in these agreements. I think a lot of organizations, they, they, fo they, not, they are not focusing on the right uh, kind of uh, bullets. They, they focus on one thing, they need to focus on, on the other direction. And this is where once, once they understand the, the situation, it's much easier to bring better uh, contracts to the better agreements to the organization. Well, Elliot, as we wrap things up, my last question for you is, what advice would you give a company that's looking to implement FinOps within their organization, but is unsure the value of putting this culture in place? How would you put it to them that the importance of implementing is not about cost, but it is all about the culture and the business value and generating revenue? You know, the short answer is that 
it is needed and there are many many examples of many organizations who didn't spend the effort and the focus on FinOps uh, early enough and they just spent so much dollars unnecessarily and then they need to kind of go few steps back and rebuild the culture. So instead of spending few years um, like that, let's build the culture from day one. It's a challenge, but onboarding to the cloud is a challenge for every organization. You need to onboard to the knowledge, you need to onboarding to financial models, you need to um, you know, you need to educate procurement and the finance. There is so much the organization has to go through in order to be able to adopt cloud in an efficient and successful way. And if you want to be successful, bring FinOps to be another uh, foundation into this, uh, into your organization. Um, if you don't do it, you're just going to be on one of the Gartner reports that are saying, hey, another, another organization who tried to go to cloud and they overspent by 200% and, you know, was it successful? No, not really. So let if you want to be successful, let's just do it together. There is a lot of knowledge in the industry today that you can benefit from. You know, I'm here to support. Many others are here to support. You really have to wait to be successful. I, I recently started to, to support a bank in Israel. And I see this gap and it's needed. You need to, when you start to, to speak FinOps, the architecture will be more, a better architecture. You know, if you bring cost into the discussion, then you will speak about network. Then you will speak about storage tiers. Then you will... It's it's it elevate the discussion to levels that weren't discussed before. Uh, it will save a lot of fixing afterwards. So if you want to be efficient, if you want to be successful, I'm here to help. Many others are here to help. Just put the effort, um, and instead of saving dollars, maybe you will not overspend. It's also a value. Yeah, you you are not gonna overspend by millions in order to save the millions. You don't need, you can be efficient from day one. Are there anybody in the FinOps community or industry that you want to highlight or give a shout out to? Yeah, of course. Uh, um, um, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. So uh, first I can highlight uh, Yair Green. He is the, my partner to co-author uh, the book we wrote. So if you want to kind of take get a techie perspective on uh, um, platform efficiency that obviously uh, um, optimize cost also is a great uh, uh, person for that. And I can also highlight uh, Noga Sharabani. She's a procurement director uh, at Clarity, one of the organizations I support. And I think she has a unique philosophy for procurement. And actually through procurement, she managed to onboard the organization to efficiency. So I really like her approach. Um, any of these two are uh, inspiring persons and inspiring people that uh, make an impact. Uh, each one, one is on the techie side, one is on the procurement side, um, really interesting people.
Well, Ellie, thank you so much for joining me in this in-depth discussion and talk around not only FinOps, Kubernetes, lift and shift, talking about the business application and reviewing it from the product, from the ground up. I really appreciate it and look forward to these discussions in the future. Amazing. I'm, uh, I think each one of these topics can, 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 can be its own topic. But yeah, really, really happy to be here. Thank you for the, for the opportunity and uh, looking forward to, to listen uh, for, to this uh, podcast and the others to come. Uh, great, great, uh, great work. <laughs> Thank you, Ellie. Have yourself a good one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. All right, everybody, this has been another awesome episode for the Faces and FinOps podcast powered by our great friends at ProsperOps. Don't forget to hit that like, subscribe, notify, and check out the ProsperOps blog. And until next time, because guess what? We're out of here.